God who is giving us peace and joy. God who is with us when there are so hard times. Be with us here and now. In this place and in this moment, help us to uncover under the layers of life that peace that you have promised. That peace that is inside of us, that peace that is always available, help us to know it and take it as the cover of our lives. Help to order our movements and our words, O oh God, that they might be of you and for you, and if they are not, help us to forgive one another, to have true mercy and grace for all that is, and to move forward together a community of faith. You're up. So, I want to tell you a story that I read this week. A story about a couple named Carol and Vernon Keene. Carol and Vernon Keene are from Washington. They live in Washington, but they were vacationing in Montana, Kalispell, Montana, a recreation national park. One of my uh, life goals, by the way, to go visit there. It's amazing. Also, it's melting. If you want to know anything about that, you should talk to Carol and Vernon Keene had brought their dog, Katie, on their trip with them. Their dog, Katie, was a seven-year-old border collie, and uh, they were staying in a dog-friendly hotel, a place where Katie was supposed to be, they were supposed to be safe. And they went out for a hike, and there was a thunderstorm, and it came down. And it turned out that in the midst of the thunderstorm, Katie had become afraid, and Katie had undone the latch on the door and escaped, escaped from their room. They couldn't find her. And so they went out from that room, and they started to search. They called her name. They got her favorite foods. They asked everyone they met, have you seen a border collie of about this size? They got pictures and started to show them. And they looked and they looked for the last week of their vacation. Um, and they hadn't found her. And so they stayed. They extended that vacation. They stayed in Montana and kept looking and kept looking. They ended up putting out thousands of pages and posters. They put out uh, calls to others to look throughout all the forests and the woods. They got a whole team together of people who were looking for Katie. Um, and they had extended their vacation, but then it came a time where Carol was going to have to return to Washington or she would lose her job. And so she quit. She quit her job and said, I need to find my dog. I love this person. I love this dog, right? I love this uh, thing that I love. And I want to find her. And they stayed. And they got uh, safe animal traps, and they put Katie's favorite foods in them, and they tried everything they could think of. They started going on jogs every day that might bring them to somewhere new, frantically searching. And all the time, they got these calls. Um, oh, I, I think I saw her. Oh, I think she's over there. And it wouldn't turn out. And then finally, on day 57, they got a call that someone had seen Katie running through a patch of woods. And they went, and they couldn't see her, and they couldn't find her until somebody called out from the other side who knew, there's a dog right behind this tree. There's a dog over here. And they went, and they found, and on day 57, they found Katie. And she was a little malnourished, and she was a little mud-strewn, but she was still Katie. And they brought her to the vet, and it says they put her in the car as quick as they could so that she couldn't get lost again. And they brought her back home to Washington. And now their family is complete again. They're together. And it's this sweet 
story. It's the kind of story, you know, it's the kind of story that gets made into a kid's movie. I'm sure it will, like next week or two weeks from now. It's hopeful and it's beautiful. And as I read it, I was like very stressed out that Katie would not be found. And I'm very happy that Katie was found. Um, and, and I also started to think to myself, um, and I, I apologize if sharing this with you means that like I'm a very bad person or I don't have some part of my soul that's actually quite essential and like I'm revealing this to you now that I'm not nice. But I also was thinking to myself, I don't know if I would do that. <laughs> um, I don't have a pet right now, um, but I grew up with a dog, several frogs, several salamanders. We were just, we were a zoo. We had a sugar glider only point, all kinds of things. Um, it, we did not get it illegally. My brother worked at a vet, and someone was mistreating it, and so we cared for it. Um, that's for the sugar glider heads in the audience. <laughs> um, and I loved them, and I cared about them, and I snuggled them. And I don't think I would give up my job, and my hometown, and my friends, and two months of my life to find them. I just don't, I just don't think I would. Um, and maybe that says something about my capacity for care and love. I know people who would do that, who would do that for their dogs. And, and so I started to think, for me, for myself, what are the things I would do that for? What would I give up everything for, right? What would I give up my job, my time, my friends, my community, anything that came along? What would I sacrifice everything for? And I couldn't think of that much. <laughs> Most of it was people. Right, the people who are the very closest to me, my children, my parents, my best friend, them I would do that for in a heartbeat. It would be easy. It wouldn't be hard. Right? I'd give up two months and more months if it meant finding them, loving them, knowing them, having them in my life. But besides people, those people I'm most close to, I don't know that there's a lot. Except for the one thing, the one thing that I think this scripture passage is, is actually at the end of the day about, um, the one thing I would give up everything for, without clarification, is the peace of God. Is the peace of God that I have in my heart, knowing God, who loves me and loves everyone. I didn't always have that. <laughs> I didn't always know it. God. I wasn't always a person who was enveloped in a community that God had created where I could love her and know her intimately. And for that, I would give up almost anything. And I think the scripture is inviting us to wonder about what we would give up everything for. What's the thing that's in your head? Is it an object, a person, a place, an experience? What are the things that matter to you so much that in order to have them, you would give it all up. Jesus often works this way. This comes in the middle of a series of parables that Jesus offers that are all metaphors um, to describe the kingdom. And what the kingdom is, um, is basically, what if God's intention for creation was fully expressed, right? What if all of the potential was reality? What if all of the harm was love? What if all of the oppression was justice? If God's intention for creation was fully expressed, that's what we call the kingdom, right? We believe that it is a promise that God has made that the kingdom will one day be a reality, but we also believe 
that the kingdom breaks in, breaks in here in our world. I thought about the kingdom this week. Um, some of you have seen Oklahoma just did the largest prisoner release that they have ever done in history. Hundreds of people all at once freed from jail. When I saw those pictures, I thought of Jesus saying, the kingdom is the liberation of the oppressed and the freeing of the prisoner. It breaks in. It happens sometimes here. And in order for us to understand that, because the fullest expression of love and creation can often feel really, really far away when you're living like a real life. Um, the way that Jesus chooses to communicate that, that to us is through these metaphors that capture not everything but something of this beauty. He says, the kingdom is like a mustard seed from a small thing that gets big. The kingdom is like yeast. Put it in everything and it'll blow it all up, right? It'll be a life where you thought there could be no life. It'll be a powder that becomes nutrition. Can you imagine? The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. And then he comes to these two. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. So this is, I want to say, there's, there's two important differences between the field treasure and the pearl treasure. In the first one, Jesus talks about the kingdom as something that you're not expecting to find, but you kind of happen upon, right? So this person in the field, he's walking around, la la la, he's either, like, maybe he's hoeing and tilling, he's like planting some vegetables, maybe he's picking a daisy, I don't know, but he's in a field that's not his, doing a thing in the dirt, and he comes upon a treasure that's totally unexpected. Something in the ground that's the most valuable thing he's ever seen that he had no idea was there. And this is something that might could have happened to people in Jesus' age. Us too, but especially back then, because there were no banks. And so the dirt was your bank. If you had something incredibly precious, you would bury it in a spot that only you knew about. And if you died, no one else would ever know. Right? So that this was something that happened to, to disciples and people um, that the disciples knew, is that you would be walking around in the dirt and all of a sudden treasure. And they find something totally unexpected. And in order to preserve it, he goes and sells everything he has. He says, this is more important. I'm getting rid of everything else. I'm sacrificing everything else so that I can buy this whole field and by having this field have the treasure. And I think that's important that he, he doesn't just get the treasure, right? He has to take the whole field that comes with it. There's an interpreter of this passage I love who talks about the, the man um, is the church. And part of what it means to be the church, or to be any human community, honestly, where you're looking for inner peace, joy, connection, love, that certainty of who God is, that peace that passes understanding, that peace that no matter how tumultuous your life is, how tumultuous the world is, remains at the heart of you. So I think this passage is about that kind of peace. Um, it talks about how in order to get the treasure of community, of being connected, of loving people, of growing, of being challenged, some broken fences and mud piles might be coming along with it, right? You gotta buy the whole field to get the treasure. You gotta take with it all of the stuff that comes above in order to get what's valuable. You take the patchy grass, you take the dirty vegetables, right? Like whatever comes with this whole field is often what you have to take to get this treasure. I think a lot of us experience that in our life. What's different about the pearl finder is that the pearl finder is looking for something extraordinary. It doesn't come along as a surprise. The merchants of pearls have seen pearls before and is specifically looking for 
He wants more. He wants more of what he has found that has been good. And when he finds the most extraordinary pearl, he knows that it's worth selling the other pearls for, selling the other things that are valuable and good. He knows that it's worth it to make a sacrifice. And I think about this merchant of pearls because um, a funny thing about my life, all of us have a spiritual journey, right? Some relationship to the world, to God, to peace, to joy that we are on trying to figure out how we're going to live and how we're going to live in this world. The advantage of being a pastor <laughs> is that you have your own, but then you get to see hundreds of other people's. You get to see all of the other ways that people are trying to figure out this thing that all of us are feeling, which is how do I be alive? How do I be alive and have peace? How do I be alive and have joy? How do I be alive and know God and have that be the center of my being instead of all of the ruckus and wreck of the vicissitudes of everyday life. And you start to notice patterns. Uh, the sad thing is that the patterns don't actually make you like better at living a better life, right? I'm still just human, but I at least get to notice the patterns because I see all of these things that people are doing and experiencing. And here's one of the big things that I've noticed over time. In every church I've been a part of, every community, all different, different kinds of people, different kinds of upbringings, different kinds of experiences. Here's one thing that I've noticed. Something that happens to a lot of us is that we can point back on a part of our life when the distance between us and joy and peace and connection felt small. Some phase in our life where either where we were or what was happening to us meant that we just felt alive and awake and aware to the world all of the time, and it was easy. Some place, some time, that just felt particularly bountiful in its spiritual gifts. The um, ancient Celts would call certain places in the world thin places, places where the wall between us and the spiritual us and the numinous us and the glorious was small, thinner. And I think a lot of us have times where it feels like that, where things feel passionate and forthright and, and um, good. And we each have different signs of it. For me, I know I'm in one of those places where my intimacy with God is total, where my confidence and peace and belovedness and what the world can do is strong when I cry all the time. That's how I know I'm in it, is that every time I worship, every time I hear a song I like, every time I meet a person who's nice, I'm just weeping for the glory of creation. It's all so beautiful. Uh, that's how it is for me. When I'm in one of those thin places, when I'm in one of those places where intimacy and connection and joy and peace are easy, that's how it feels for me. Some of the things I've seen in other people is um, when kindness and generosity are easy for you. You can tell you're in one of these places when just like, People do not have the power to irritate you, right? Nothing can touch your calm, smooth lake of knowledge that things will be okay and this too shall pass. It's just easier to be kind. It's easier to be generous with the world. It's easier to see the bright side, right? Because you're in this place of centeredness. Other people, when I see them, when they're in one of those thin places where they're just close and it's just good and it's just easy, is that they're on fire. Whatever um, feels like it has provided that moment, they become evangelists and builders for more people to know that 
thing. They are alive and they want to do stuff. That's how that thing starts to affect them. Each one of us is different. But most of us have times we can point to where things just felt good that morning. And then most of us also have times we can point to where it didn't feel like that at all. Where everything felt distant, where everything felt disconnected, where everything felt hard. Connecting to another person, connecting to God, but most especially connecting to ourselves. Being able to be alone with ourselves without getting mad or hating or needing to distract ourselves with something. Right? Connecting to our needs and meeting them, connecting to our joy and feeling it felt like a deep struggle. And what I see over and over and over again is that people like to call, we like to imagine, I'll include myself in this, that the difference between those thin places and those hard places is mostly external, right? It's about the job I have. It's about the boyfriend I have. It's about whether my best friend was nice to me on our last call. It's about the church I'm going to. It's about some external circumstance is what creates the difference between when I am close and connected and fully alive and when I am disconnected and distracted and hurt. And external things matter, right? Like life happens to us and affects our mood and affects our stuff. That's true. But I think after watching it over and over and over again, that we vastly overestimate how much the external has to do with our inner peace, has to do with our centeredness. And one of the reasons I know that is because I listen to some of the wisest spiritual teachers of the modern era who are people who are in recovery. Um, in my personal opinion, like recovery groups and recovery spirituality preserved a lot of the greatest insights of Christianity during a time when our small group culture was becoming really like rigid and comfortable and mean. And so now we can go back to it and be like, oh, well, thank you for teaching these things. Can we learn from them once again? Um, and recovery spirituality has all of these gifts, but one of them that I think about myself over and over and over again is the idea that some folks in recovery taught me of pulling a geography, right? Pulling a geography, which is when in the midst of either struggle or like new sobriety, something new and wonderful is happening, something great, uh, or things are really hard, you pull a geography, which means um, the things that I need to change in my life will be changed if I move to Portland, right? <laughs> the things that need to change in my life will change if I get a different part-time job. The things that need to be changed in my life will change if I change something external. But here's the thing about Portland, or whatever the imaginary Portland has been for you. About a year in, the new things about Portland will become the old things about where you live, and you will still be there. Turns out, you bring you wherever you go. <laughs> and if you change your job, and you change your friends, and you change your town, but you still aren't good with you, if you still haven't found access to peace, if you still haven't found ways to center yourself in the midst of whatever is happening, you will bring exactly the same problems you had where you were to work. Because a lot of it is internal, not external. 
and we spend all of this time making external busy work to avoid doing the internal work that's the only thing that's ever Expert, but I, I want to offer to you, not as a command and not as a condemnation, right? Because you're figuring your thing out. Pretty much the only two things that I have ever seen truly change dramatic internal work for people their sense of connection and joy and peace with God. And that is picking a place and picking a practice. At some point, you just have to pick a community to be your community. It should be one that doesn't harm you, right? There are places where communities can't hold who we are or what we need, and those are really hard times of disruption. But absent that level of harm, you just have to pick a community to be your community, to expose you to new ideas and new people, to love you, to an enduring commitment, annoy you, right? And be a place that doesn't always work, be people who you don't always understand, because nothing sharpens us or grows us like other human beings in whom we just have to continue finding new ways to love and figuring out new things about what it means to be human together. You just have to pick one, you have to pick a community and commit to it over time. And see the ways in which picking a community and getting through the hard parts of it will change you. I have experienced it and I've seen it over and over again. Just picking a group of people in whom I have to keep coming face to face with the reality of who I am and what it means to be another person and what it means to love despite all of that, it changes. And then the second thing is to pick a practice. Pick a thing that you do to try and grow. There are all kinds of practices in the world, right? Um, praying in this way, praying in that way, breath care, meditation, examine. And a thing that I used to do, which you may be wiser than I, um, was that I was always on the hunt for the perfect one, right? For the great one, for the one that was going to match me exactly. I'm going to do the examine for three weeks. I'm going to do the breath care for three weeks. I'm going to do this technology of fixing myself and finding the silver bullet to all of spirituality and justice and joy. Um, and then at the end, I'll know the perfect one, and I'll do it, and then it'll fix everything. But what actually would happen was that I would just change and change and change, um, and I would come to the same conclusion over and over and over again, which is, oh, this is still hard, and I am still me, <laughs> um, and it's still hard to grow. And the only thing that has changed for me is picking a practice, any practice, maybe not the perfect one, and committing to it in an enduring way over time. For the last couple of years, I picked a baby practice because I finally learned about myself that I was not going to be the like um, monk in the world who finds six hours a day to, to meditate. <laughs> uh, and I, I want to I thank God multiple times a day. That was my new goal. I want to thank God multiple times a day. And I do it, right? I find something to thank God for multiple times a day. And then I added one that my therapist gave to me, which was um, anytime you find yourself thinking that you're either worse or better than other people or everything's going wrong or everything's wrong for them or everything's wrong for you, just say to yourself, I'm a human and I'm trying. <laughs> so those have been my two practices for a couple of years now. Find something to be thankful for, I'm a human and I'm trying. <laughs> 
and they are not fancy, and they are not silver bullet technologies, and I am not perfect, but I have been changed by the time, by the accretion. It is easier for me today to see something beautiful in the world that I am grateful for than it was three years ago, because I have practiced being alert to the good and the beautiful by giving thanks for it. It is easier for me to be generous with others and with myself because I have practiced thousands of times, not just two times, but I'm human and I'm trying. <laughs> and it's opened me up to the reality that I am and that others are too. There comes a point when you just have to pick a community and pick a practice, no matter how imperfect they are, and see what they will do with you and see what God will do with you through them. Because, as we return to this scripture, I want to remind you how a pearl is made, which some of you may or may not know. A pearl is not made because God comes to the world and says, pearls are pretty. Here are a thousand of them. Pearls on the ground. A pearl is not made because an oyster says to itself, I am inspired. I want to make a pearl today. The oysters aren't artists who are creating little pockets of beauty and inspiration and um, daily life. The, the pearl comes from when a piece of sand or a parasite or a bacteria, something that is literally called an irritant, right? Something that an irritant gets under the protective layer of an oyster. When it gets into your vulnerable spot, right? When it gets under all of the walls you've put up, all of the skin you've put between you and the wall, when one tiny irritant gets in there, and then day after day after day after day for years, the oyster puts one layer of nectar, one layer of mother of pearl on that little irritant. When every day for years, you put one thing in that provokes your defenses, that is a community or a practice that gets to the heart of you and it annoys the hell out of you and it isn't pretty and it isn't fun, but you just keep doing it day after day. That's when you get a pearl. Not from inspiration, but from consistency. Consistently engaging with the things of the world that are in front of us, consistently engaging with the things underneath our outer layer, and consistently putting layers of beauty on the brokenness that is the world, because how has God ever changed anything except through that? So we are in a time when we are thinking about inner and outer growth, and I would encourage you to pick your community and pick your practice and see what God will do for you. Amen.